Welcome back to Grassroots, the Minor Hockey Show podcast. I'm Richard Berkison with my guest co-host, Dean Holden. And in this show, applying CDEF to minor hockey coaching. In fact, what Dean and I are going to do in this particular episode is go back to a discussion we had with Neil Sedgwick in episode 78. Neil Sedgwick is the coach of the University of Northern British Columbia women's uh, soccer team. Uh, talking about Raymond Verheyen, the Dutch coach, who came up with a different perspective on how we should be coaching uh, our sports, particularly invasion sports, and uh, the methods that we use and why we should be using them. Let me start this by first describing what invasion sports are, because this has to do with the nature of the sport. An invasion sport under teaching games for understanding is one in which you're trying to invade another team's territory, score a goal, get a point, however you want to describe it. And there are a number of invasion sports that all have a number of things in common. Uh, We're talking about ice hockey here, but there's also field hockey. There's football, there's basketball, there's rugby, there's soccer, there's lacrosse, there's ringette are the major ones, all of which have similar goals. I would maintain, I, Dean, I'm guessing that you would agree that ice hockey is by far the more complicated one, the most chaotic one, the most difficult one to play, and perhaps for that reason, the most, most difficult one to coach. I think the pace of play, just given the nature of the sport and the speed at which things occur, and it's <clears> a confi- confined space surrounded by you know boards and um plexiglass so you know it makes the fact that you can't run out of bounds and then deaccelerate on your own um on your own timeline i mean you've you've got to be aware of 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 very structured surroundings so the different but the difference is that i mean the same holds true for ringette and for lacrosse box lacrosse where they mm-hmm. play inside the boards of a rink mm-hmm. but the difference is the implement that we're using we don't have the same kind of control over a hockey puck with a 50-inch long hockey stick that they would in lacrosse or certainly a player has in ringette. So that lack of control of the implement of the puck or the ball uh, separates hockey from every other sport. And that's why it's so challenging to play. You just have, it's just tough <laughs> to control a puck. Exactly. I mean, you know, if you cut a stick shorter, you're going to have an easier ability to control it as opposed to if it's longer and if it's the right length uh, hockey stick compared to a lacrosse stick or whatever, then there is a difference. So let's, let's go back to uh, Raymond Verhan And what we are doing is looking at a podcast I will put in the show notes that he did with John O'Sullivan, who runs the changing the game project in Oregon. And uh, John, in fact, was on my podcast uh, on TSN 1200 in Ottawa when I was with uh, Greg Kennedy some years ago. We were talking about parents in the game and whatnot because he's very much into that. But he had Raymond Verhan on uh, his podcast recently to talk about CDEF, communication, decision-making, execution, and fitness. And, of course, Verhan was talking about football. In other words, soccer, the world's largest or greatest, biggest in volume sport. We are going to take all of that information and translate it into hockey uh, parlance and try to make the point that the kinds of things that he's referring to in uh, the CDEF approach should be applied to minor hockey coaches as well. Yeah, and I think that it's um, it's easily <clears throat> translatable, and I think it's a very worthwhile endeavor to, for, for coaches to take the information from Raymond and, and, and transfer it into whatever invasion sport they're at. It's, it's not very difficult. And I think that it's, um, it's a philosophical understanding and a, and a shift in how we view the game. I don't think it's a tough, it's not a tough thought exercise. It's, it's pretty simple. You, you've just got to, you know, understand it and give it a chance. Let's start with C. Communication. It's interesting that, you know, this fellow is Dutch and his, his command of English is phenomenal. And he chose to use CDEF, you know, in English as opposed to his native tongue. He gives the example of soccer being 
the world's largest sport or most popular or most populous sport, and yet there's no common language for football, for soccer. And he described how if you put one person from various countries, each speaking their own language in a room, they would have no way to communicate with each other if they were talking about soccer because they all speak their own language. So you could have an English person and a French person, an Italian person, a Dutch person, and a Korean person, and on and on and on. And there's no common approach in language for soccer. But does that hold true for hockey? Well, it can. I mean, the example that you just stated there, you know, soccer is a worldwide game, and it, and it is the you know the largest game, the most popular game by number of participants, and it's it's worldwide. Um, I reflect back on when I was with working with the IHF in Viramaki with the um, it was a U sixteen male uh, development camp, and on our team, and there was four teams. I had. 20, I think there was 22 players on our team, and I believe there was something like 14 or 16 different native languages because they take kids from all over the world and bring them into this thing. And then English is the, um, the common denominator for the International Ice Hockey Federation, so everything is delivered in English, like written and spoken. So they hope that there's some semblance of... Um, uh, commonality using English but I mean it was still incredibly tough at times because you have to be careful of what words you choose and, and speak slowly and we had translators sometimes that could speak English plus something even our coaching staff we had um, a fellow from Hong Kong who spoke several languages Leo we had Jason from Australia so it was tough to understand him sometimes because of the slang that he would throw in, in English. And it's like, mm, I've heard that, but I'm not sure what that means. And then um, we had a, a manager from Ireland, or an athletic therapist, trainer from, I think it was Lithuania. And, um, you know, we had another coach from Poland, Tobias. And, you know, it was quite an interesting dilemma because even though English was supposedly the accepted common language, kids and people still struggled to communicate. And so even just taking that example of, of slang within English, um, you know, it, it, it can lead to confusion and miscommunication. And even when I went to do my coursework at Cardiff Met in Wales, they would say something like clean the sheets and, and referring to it in soccer and, and things like this. And, you know, I was kind of like, oh, oh I got to get Google Translate out. What is this? You know, and so I would had to ask and they would explain it to me and have a little chuckle at my lack of um, understanding the cultural slang. So I think that Raymond is very correct. When he comes back to the basis of what I've read in his, um, his uh, book from 2020 that I bought, um, Everything starts around communication and he goes further into it in talking about it's a philosophical foundation and we have to be very much um, clear with our definitions of terms. So what is a pass versus what is a puck transfer? What is a, um, what is a hockey action? What is a forecheck? What is a breakout? What is a what is support? You know, if we get into principles of play, what is pressure? What is stall and contain? What is transition? So even though these words to English speakers might sound familiar, how many of us will have the same definition for these terms? And in short, Raymond says, until you have a clear definition of each one of these terms um, like a, a universal hockey language so to speak until you have the clear definitions you might not achieve mutual understanding between coaches between players between officials administrators whatever so communication is is very much a foundational issue i saw a, a little thing on twitter not too long ago where a commentator, a hockey commentator on an NHL game in the U.S. was referring to F1 and F2 
using that terminology during a broadcast. And the person on Twitter who was a journalist in Canada uh, wrote something like, um, F1, F2, who do you think your audience is? Hmm. You know, your audience is not other NHL coaches. Your audience is the average person sitting in their armchair watching this game. They don't know what the heck you mean by F1 and F2. And I see coaches of little kids saying, well, my F1, I've got to get my F2. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> what what are you referring to? What what do you mean F1, F2? I, I remember back in the early days, I mean, again, that it's a cultural thing, right? Like in, in the States, um, prior to Gretzky getting traded, the there were certain hotbeds of hockey in the U.S. primarily based around um, climatic conditions, right? So, you know, the East Coast, Minnesota, has is, is long been a, a hockey hot, hotbed, and and um, but but California, it's foreign. Oregon, it was foreign. Washington State, it was foreign. And for me, being a Westerner, I remember when um, I played in Spokane, went to school there for a year and i remember like tri-city americans came into the league in kennewick washington and even portland when they first came into the league i heard stories about this where the announcer for the the western hockey league teams would when there was an icing when there was a, an offside a penalty i mean obviously they announced the penalties but they they would also announce um offside portland Know, icing tri cities like they would announce they would physically announce that to the crowd because the cultural um, the, the cultural nature of that area and that geography wasn't used to the culture of hockey so they were they were attempting to reach out to, to clarify um, what a visual stimulus was for the crowd with the definitions so then the people would become more educated and they they did it for a couple of years that i was aware of and 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 some of these places that have those uh the newness to the sport i think that they do that just to try to help um educate the the fans so i think it's a good thing it, it, we, we kind of thought it was hokey we're going Wait, why are they announcing this but at the end of the day they're just trying to clarify communication and that's a good thing well, you're educating the fans too, because if they don't know the sport, other than the odd time they may have watched it on TV, uh, they don't know what the difference is, and and how would they know if they've never been exposed to it? But just yeah. getting back to getting back to the, to the minor hockey situation and communication, there's a tendency everywhere to use the same terminology with children and with young teens as if we were coaching junior teams or pro teams. Using I gave one example of F1, F2. There's another example of breakout. We have to have a breakout. Without knowing what the context is, how do breakouts happen? You know, they, they come from transitions or loss of puck and regaining puck and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so when I've used it, when I refer to breakouts with coaches in, in clinics and whatnot, I haven't said breakouts. I've said, get out of your zone which could mean any number of things, but it's plain English. First, get the puck, then get out of your zone. How it might do you mean get getting out of, out of your comfort zone too. And for sure. So just having that term, using terminology that is well beyond the children. And I remember watching a coach, uh, I think it was last year, the year before. So it was a girls team. Uh, I believe they were about 11 or 12 years old. He was doing a video session. So he had the screen up in the room and the girls are sitting at tables and he's pointing out, you know, issues with positional play and referred, referring to it as if he is the color commentator on a junior or pro game. He was correct in what he was pointing out, but I wasn't watching him. I was listening to him and watching the kids' faces. They were completely lost. Had no idea what he was talking about. I think we make too many presumptions, you know, when we're, we're coaching. And um, I, I think that, that that's a really good point that Raymond makes. And it's something that I've been trying to do for the last several years is um, understand who your, who your clients are, who, who's your players, who's your coaches. Who's your audience. Who's your audience. Because like even this year with my uh, son's U15 team, um, 
I, I'm working with a couple of coaches that I've never worked with before and they, they've never worked with me. And there's only my son, Devin, and one other kid on the team that I had last year. And there's a couple other kids that I've had in years past, but it's, you know, it's been years. And I think that I need to check my language as far as making sure it's understood. So, you know, define and clarify. So this last week I've been sitting down, starting to com <clears throat> compile a, um, a document for my coaches and my players and my parents. And it starts with my philosophy and it, and it continues into definitions of terms. It almost is like a, like a lexicon a or an index. Yeah. Right? Like a lexicon of your language. Yeah. Because I, I want to make sure that if I say, get out of the <clears throat> zone, what does that mean? I need, I need to spell it out because we can't just assume. So that's what I've been working on. It's, it's a, it's a work in progress, but I, I really think that I, 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 talking with the other coaches, I think that this group has a real desire, motivation and capacity to learn. Like it's, it's really kind of cool actually to, to get this, this feeling from this group that they're, they're very uh, keen to get better. And, you know, I, I want to make sure I'm coaching to the audience. So if they didn't really show that desire and that keenness and capacity, I would have to dumb down for lack of a better word or adapt or be flexible to my approach. I can't just go in with one size fits all as a coach. It's part of the art of coaching is reading your audience. And so the same, same can be said with my coaches. I've got, we've got to get to know each other and I want to make sure when we communicate, we're all on the same, the same wavelength. There's another point that uh, Verhein makes in that podcast with uh, John O'Sullivan. It has to do with the nonverbal communication. That, uh, and we talked about this before we went on the air, that our perceptions of what we see on the bench as coaches or on the ice standing in the middle of a drill or even on the edge of a drill or a game standing on the boards is very different from what the kids see. So I'm going to give an example, which is, it's a bit nuts, which is, you know, consistent with me anyway. <laughs> so I play in this league of old people, old farts, and I was playing right wing. That's my normal position because I don't think I could play anything else. So I got the puck at uh, the far blue line and I had my back to the offensive zone. I could not see what was coming. So I gave it to my right defenseman who was about 20 feet from me. And he passed it across the rink to the left defenseman who went up the other side of the rink. It was actually a very nice play by those other guys. And then we got a scoring chance out of it. About four shifts, five shifts later, I got the puck on the right wing boards in our zone. And I looked at that same right defenseman and I passed him the puck. Why? Because it worked before. Except this time, there was a green jersey <laughs> came out of nowhere and tipped the puck away and we got into trouble in our zone. What I had seen before, I saw again, but my vision, I used tunnel vision. I was not paying attention to what else was going around me. I just All I saw was my right D. I'll give it back to my right D because my back was to the play again. Whether or not I should have had my back to the play is not the question. The question is, what did I see at that moment and what happened as a result? So as coaches, was there a mistake made? Yes. Was it an error of omission or commission? My definition is an error of commission is I committed an error, but it wasn't intentional. I, I, the mistake happened because I wasn't paying enough attention to some of the other cues around me. An error of omission was I just blindly did it. The first thing that came to my mind because I haven't been trained otherwise, or I'm not capable of doing anything otherwise. But the nonverbal cues, <laughs> my right defenseman, you know, as we're going up the ice afterwards, we regained the puck. He looks at me and he just shrugged. I, I went, well, okay, I blew it. Right. So the uh, was the amateur scout of Montreal at your game? To see no, there were no scouts at that game, fortunately, because that actually the rest of my game wasn't so bad. But <clears throat> that jumped out at me because if I were the coach watching that, I would have looked at 
at the right winger and said, what a stupid pass to make. But yeah. from where I was standing at that point, it was actually, I thought it would be a good play. So like, I, and again, I'm just thinking we're talking about language and clarity of terms and definitions, like error of omission, error of commission. And my understanding of an error of omission is you choose not to do something. Or that too, yes. And yes. commission is you choose to do something. Now, I'm not going to, I don't know if you have to add the value of something. You, you choose to do nothing, you know, is that neutral or do you do nothing that's negative or do you do nothing positive versus commission? So I encourage my players in practice I, I would almost, if I, I'd have to think about this, but I think it might be better in practice for the coach to encourage their players to make errors of commission. Not agreed. Meaning, don't do something that you know is deliberately wrong. That's not what I mean by that. I mean, try something, try something new and see what happens. Right. Error of omission in practice means I don't want to screw up. I don't want to make a mistake. So I'm going to sit in my hands. I'm not going to try something. And to me, that's, um, you know, it's like in the classroom, you know, can somebody answer this? And you pose a question or, you know, some sort of a case study, get people to contribute. Nobody wants to put their hand up and be the first to answer in case they're wrong and they don't want to seem and appear stupid in front of their peers. And it's no different in the rink. So, I think we've got to, as, as coaches, encourage errors of commission over errors of omission. But again, we, we, need, to, we need to look at the language and the, the definition of terms. And we need to set that culture. It's a little bit of an aside. But we, as coaches, need to ensure that that culture of trying new things and creative solutions and problem solving and making a mistake and then learning from that mistake and trying again, that those things are okay within our within our, our practice environment. I sometimes get the sense that there's a real fear among minor hockey coaches to allow their players to mess up. Yeah. yeah. That uh, it, unless they do it right the first time, every time. First which time is or second or third, depending if it's new. But yes, I agree. Like right. the, the, the perfection is always the... Um, it's like we've had... And again, we're, we're starting to veer a little bit from Raymond, but I think there's... Um, there's a perception in practice that, you know, what, what is learning? How do you define learning? And most coaches that, and this is just my presupposition, is I'm going to run a pattern drill and we're going to repeat the pattern drill over and over and over until it looks almost perfect. Then we consider that it's learned and then we move on to the next pattern drill and we go over it, over well, and over. Well, the pattern is and, learned. Well, and, and we're just trying to get to a, um, we're trying to get the execution and what it appears from the CDE. We're trying to get that execution to look like it's learned. But if we reverse engineer this, we're not, there's no learning. And I, I mean, we've talked about before on the show, basically in practice, you're trying to take stuff and, and, and it's in working or short-term memory and move it into long-term memory, which has to happen over a period of time. And it doesn't happen in one practice and show up in a game five days later. Uh, they've wiped their mem memory banks from there. It's got to be something that's more repetitive and, and more commonly occurring you know, in, in practice reps leading up to a performance. In but, but we're talking about execution, and most coaches will just see that execution and judge themselves. Oh, good, good job, Dean. You're a good coach. The guy's really got the horseshoe down now right? Like we're executing that. The passes are on the tape. We're actually hitting the net a few times and only warming up the boards and glass 80% of the time. Um, you know, so I think it, we, we, the stereotypical response of a coach is they're going to be first to jump to what does the execution look like? And if it looks perfect, therefore they have learned that makes me a good coach and good job, and we'll go to the next practice. Now, Verhan descri describes the execution as the last phase of an interaction. Now, I'm just yes. going to step back for a second because in his in that 
podcast he did with O'Sullivan, he talked about a soccer situation with a right fullback wanting to pass it over to the right side. So let's say back to a right winger wanting to pass it to the middle of the ring to a center or defenseman coming up through your zone to come out of your zone. Okay. The right winger is a left shot, let's say. The center is a right shot, let's say. If this child, who is the right, the left shot on the right side, whether she should or he should be there or not, again, isn't the point, is trying to make a pass and judging the, the speed, trying to judge communication, nonverbal communication, trying to judge the speed at which that player is going up the ice and passes it into the player's skates instead. Puck lost. Transition to the other team, scoring chance, because it happens in your circle, okay? Then you're on the boards or you're on the bench and going, what the hell? My kid just passed it into the skates of the center. That's not what we practiced. So therefore, that is bad execution. The fact of the matter is it began with the verbal or the nonverbal communication. The child saw where the pass should go. Try well, you, to you hope you hope they saw until you talk to them. You don't. Know. Well, until you ask them. So let's go on the assumption that 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 the kids saw it and tried to make the pass, but because the kid is on the backhand, he doesn't have a great backhand, so he passes it straight across, opposed to moving the hands up, which is a correctable thing in practice, and the pass goes into the kid's skates. So there's an action that takes place, a hockey action that takes place that gets completely botched, leading to all kinds of trouble. All as a result of what? Was it a poor communication? Was it the reception, the person trying to receive the pass had their stick in the wrong place? Was it a technical issue? What exactly was the problem? Well, and I, I think that we just said the, the, um, the initial response from a coach is they're going to look at the execution and they might focus on that almost entirely and assume the passer can't make a pass and the receiver can't receive a, a pass in their skates. In other words, poor technique is the poor way he technique, describes it. Yeah. Right. And then <clears throat> if you reverse engineer it a little bit to what typically would happen, they might say, well, it was a bad choice to put it in their skates maybe they should have let it. So now it's not just technique, it's also a little bit of tactic because they're looking at the situation, the time and the space. So I think the first the first inclination is to look at the, uh, the technique or the execution. And then some coaches might then consider more of the contextual tactical environment. Um, and really what Raymond is saying is, is you, you've got to reverse engineer it even, even beyond that. Um, you know, when the kid comes off, you can ask them, um, what did you, what did you do? What did you see? What were your options? You know, that sort of thing and, 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 and backward engineer it from execution to the decision, you know, what other decisions could, did you see, which is partially then goes into C, which is communication and their ability to get their head up and read the play or not. So then you can determine, yeah, um, Richard needs to work on his his passing technique or Richard needs to learn to, you know, get his head up and scan more so perhaps he can start to see other options. And then was did Richard just throw it blindly? Did he have his head down or did he look up and make eye contact and see that there was a, you know, the stick was placed on the ice by the centerman and he just couldn't hit it? So I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of reverse engineering steps there that I think most coaches don't consider. They get fixated on the end result, what happened, the execution. And even if the kid who was on the right side was a right shot, and the player coming up the middle of the rink was a left shot, which would have been easy, and you know the same mistake can take place by passing it just a poorly made pass pass it into the skates or pass it too far ahead. And you see it all the time in kids hockey, you know, like the game that the kids eight, nine, 10, 11 years old play barely resembles what hockey should be. If you can get a couple of passes in a row, you've done really well, mm -hmm. but that's the same in any sport they play. 
any invasion sport, you watch them trying to hit a tennis racket, like watching uh, or tennis ball, watching my uh, granddaughter uh, try tennis last summer at a tennis camp. The camp was pretty good, but it was a lot of stand, wait in line, hit a ball, go to the back of the line, hit a ball, go to the back of the line. How about we just play? And, and there's no volleying or attempt at volleying at that. It's just if you can make one hit over the net, God bless, go to the back of the line. Yep. Like, you know, yep. I, I, I would I would drop out of that in a heartbeat just because to me just, that's not, not fun, not no, exactly. not gonna return. But yeah. you know, but that's the traditional approach, right? And I think that the it, within hockey, that traditional approach or in any invasion game is the first instinct of the coach is to look at execution and and then focus on that without looking at the communication and the decision making. It's funny how many uh teachers I've spoken to over the years, particularly phys ed teachers over the last, you know, 25 years or so, who are only vaguely familiar with teaching games for understanding and invasion sports, or they had heard of it, but had never really given it much thought or studied it or decided to use it. So we have an entire generation of physical education teachers who haven't used it. And if they're coaching hockey, they're going, well, that, that doesn't apply to hockey. Well, why not? <laughs> Shouldn't it? Well, it's just ignorance, right? And, and and I mean, we can track that back to, um, you know, various um, school board division curriculum development, mm. et cetera. And we've talked about coach uh, certification and development yeah, yeah. or lack thereof on this program before. So sadly, it's up to the coaches to educate themselves in a lot of these things and, and, and probably the teachers too. Well, we, we were on communication and decision. So the decision that that kid made, giving the example of the kid on the right side, you know, um, as, as Verhein says, the angle of what the coach sees versus what the player sees. Mm -hmm. And unless you're in the um what's the camera that you put on well, top of you, you're a third person point of view as the coach and right you're right the player you're the first person point of view yeah so unless you're you're in the camera in the kid's head or on the kid's mm -hmm. helmet what are those mm -hmm. cameras called you know what i'm talking about yeah like a gopro or something. a gopro you're, you're, you're in the go and you're talking to the kid as you're, he's you're making an xbox the play. coach and you should yeah. just shut up and turn the camera off right 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 so you know trying to uh, visualize what that kid saw and then correct that in the moment just let the kid try it they're gonna yeah. it, it'll it'll fail sometimes and sometimes it'll work and the situation will change every single time as i've told players so often there is no situation that occurs in a hockey game that you will ever have that will ever happen again well, it's a chaotic game. It's ever changing. It's yeah. um, you know, and and like most invasion sports are, and exactly. So I think the um, you know, accept errors of commission mm -hmm. even in games. I remember, I don't know if Mike Johnson's still doing it. He's he's coaching Portland. I, I worked with Mike a long time ago. I think it was like ninety ninety five and ninety eight with the national team, and he was putting some pretty good stuff up on LinkedIn. And I, I'm not familiar with all the platforms these days, like. That are out there but i know he was doing like little coaching clinics through COVID, and i i actually sat in on one or two of the zoom calls but he he was producing like a, a couple of minute short videos on on linkedin and so this would have been this was 2018 that i remember because i was in cardiff and i saw one of them on there and he was showing a breakout and the common hockey myth that you never pass in front of your own net in your own zone and he had diagrammed it out and he had showed it in real time and, and he stopped and he'd talked, he'd addressed to it. Would you tell this kid who was under pressure in the one corner and there was no option up the wall or behind the net, the only option was a diagonal pass to, I'm presuming it was the center in front of the net, I can't remember. And he attempted a pass to the center in front of the net on his own team. It jumped over his stick, went onto the stick of the guy pressuring him from behind. The guy got a shot on goal. I don't think he scored, but it was a pretty good scoring chance from the slot. And, and Mike just asked the question. So coaches, this this player in the corner, what community, like, like if we look at it in terms of CDE, what's this player reading? Like what's the communication? What's the information that this player under pressure in the corner is receiving? What decision did he make? And then what did he execute? 
And so Mike simply said, I'm fine at my level for the kid who's under pressure. He, he didn't see anything else. So he decided this was my best option. Instead of turning the puck over down low, he decided, well, this is my best option. I'm not going to turn it over. Hopefully the center is going to turn and wheel and you know jump into open space. And he made a good hard flat pass. It wasn't technique because it, it hit something on the ice and jumped over the kid's stick. So he made good CDE, but the end result wasn't what they wanted, and they gave up a, a scoring chance. And so that, that, I, I, that always struck me, and I used it in some teaching stuff after that. I had the clip of, you know, it's the myth. You never pass in front of your own net. But this kid, from what I could see on the video, you know, I agreed with Mike, you know, and, and, and a lot of coaches just say, well, tar and feather that kid, sit him down and he's not going out again because that's his fault, right? right? The guy who, who, the centerman who couldn't handle a bouncing puck and the passer who gave a nice flat pass, but it bounced up. So again, it's, you know, you got to start to reverse engineer and, and look at the entirety of the pitcher, talk to the player. What did they see? What information did they process? What options did they see? And then you can start to look at, okay, what's the execution? He also refers to in, in the podcast, well, it's actually John O'Sullivan, I guess, went to a one-day conference that Verhane had given somewhere in the States not too long ago. And he went on the pitch, the field. We're going to take this to hockey in a second. And at one end of the field pitch, he had five kids passing a ball around. At the other end of the field, he had 10 versus one kicking the ball around to keep one player from touching it. So Pro probably one of our favorite things called the rondo. The ron well, the, the which the one the five on oh. Five, no, oh, the ten one. against one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh um, he says Ver sarcastically. Yes. Verhan said the five on oh wasn't passing. They called it passing, but it's not passing, it's just kicking a ball. It's like Tell, watching coaches do a, an exercise where the kids are standing in a circle or standing face to face and they're exchanging passes. They're exchanging the puck. As Neil Cedric would say, transferring a puck. Transferring the puck. At the other end, they were doing 10 versus one, which of course is way too easy. Uh, it should be six against one, five against one, four against one, maybe in a more confined space or however you want to do it. But clearly the objective was to have the players make decisions under certain kinds of trying conditions, as simple as those trying conditions were, where the 10 against one did force the kids to, to pass the ball because somebody could intercept it. Mm -hmm. In hockey, of course, with the sticks, you could intercept the puck quite easily. When you play two against one, three against one keep away, it's really easy to intercept the puck or at least deflect it. So certainly when I've done that little activity, I just say, as soon as you touch it, you switch. Well, it depends on the space too, right? The sure, timing, sure. The spacing, the ability, the level of the kids. So even the, um, but like you're saying, at the end of the day, his contrast was something in isolation and unopposed is kicking, yes. not passing. It's transferring, it's <clears> kicking, <throat> right? And and the 10 on one, and, and he even admitted it on the, on the uh, pod that, you know, it's not representative truly of the game. And obviously that'll never happen in a game. But the fact that there is one live opponent, I, I don't know how big the space was or the level to play, but at least that now is starting to force the kids to be aware that they have to keep their head up and they have to start to communicate verbally, non-verbally, where are the open spaces on they the They have pitch? to make decisions. And then, exactly, and then decide and then execute and can they do a decision and execution. And so he even said, look, well, I'd move it down to a 6-1 or a 5-1 or a 5-2. And, and then even then, there, you know, I think he said there was really no team intention. There's no metric. That doesn't no. really happen in a game. So it's a bad example. But he was just using it as a, I think he called it a football thought experiment for people to look at so they could understand isolation and unop unopposed practice or training is really it's just like babysitting it's just playground just we're kicking a ball as opposed to with an opponent and a little bit of um it adds a little bit of opposition a little bit of you know decision making communication even though it's not truly a reflective practice design he was referring to a football action 
And then he got, he says, if you, if you first have to have a philosophical definition of mm -hmm. what, well, football action or a hockey action is. So if a hockey action involves, and we're talking, we're still talking about children, eight years old, 12 years old. Could be talking old, about adults and pros. It, right. Too. It doesn't really matter, but we're talking about minor hockey here. Yeah. Um, what's our definition of a hockey action? Okay. Uh, and then he, he segued into one of my favorite topics that I had to put in the notes in our last discussion about critical thought about uh, pylons and no there is no research that says that if you're standing within five feet of a pylon it will cause cancer but pylons are still used in in practice by soccer coaches hockey coaches and i'm sure other coaches as well other sports and as he says you have to ask yourself a couple of really key questions when you include pylons where kids have to maneuver around them are they making decisions and secondly, are they making decisions based on some kind of communication mm -hmm. that involves a decision, which is the next step? Mm -hmm. So if there's no communication with the pylon, except the pylon is sitting there and saying, go around me. It doesn't have to be a pylon. It could be a coach, another player. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at what a hockey action involves, going around pylons repeatedly or face-off dots, or players in a hockey practice environment markings on the ice yes so what they are doing is executing decisions of the coach yes they're well, not they're, performing any hockey actions they're replicating a pattern that's been predetermined by the coach usually put up on a whiteboard or named so now they know where you know, these pylons or markings on the ice are going to be, and we have to, we have <clears> to execute a predetermined pattern. And because it's against either a pylon or some, somebody static or a mark or just in space, that's, those aren't hockey actions because there's no, they're, they're, they're actions in isolation. It's just um, choreography. I think you've used that term previously. It's, it's like a, you know, a, a pair's figure skating presentation on the ice. It's it's choreographed and it's memorization and then it's regurgitation. And it's like practicing a five-on-o breakout, a five-on-o power play, um, any of these things. And, you know, you, the, we talked about perfectionism in practice earlier. And what's the easiest way to get perfect execution? Don't have any opposition. Teach a pattern. So now the player knows where to go, when to go, how to go, and they do it, or players, and then, boy, the coach, you know, taps himself in the back. I'm, I'm so smart. I'm so good. We look great. We're ready for the, you know, Riverdale high game next week for sure. And then it, we add the opposition. We add the chaos. We add, we add actual referees who call actual offsides and icings and penalties because we don't, traditionally do that in practice sometimes and all of a sudden our environmental contextual cues are completely alien because we're just we're not going five on oh anymore we're going five on five five on four you said, dean you said riverdale high isn't that uh, the high school that archie and veronica yes, and of betty course. and jughead went to yes up. good yes i thought yes, i so thought you know it went in my hand and went Riverdale, Riverdale, where did I I know, I saw your look, and I was hoping you're <laughs> going to come up with Archie versus Reggie because no, the, um, the rivalry Reggie, there, yeah, right. you know. But anyway, but I mean, I think the um, practicing in isolation speaks to wasted time, and I see it from pro to Timbit, and oh, but we've got to understand where to go. Well, why? Like, you're never, like, you said it earlier today, Richard, the game changes constantly. You're not going to go exactly the same place in the same direction. And Never. My, I, I, my U15 kid said to me after our first exhibition game, Coach, we need to work on our breakouts. And this is after the game. I think we lost 5-1 or whatever. And uh, I, I just, I, I tried not to burst out laughing. And I'm going, you know, it really hit home. Like, we've got a long way to go. I have to educate a lot of people on philosophy clarity of terms sure because a lot of the stuff that we had done already even though it only involved a couple of people at a time 
it all involves principles of play and concepts. So you're looking at transition, support, um, you know, puck control, pre- pressure, stall and contain. Like, like, like a, two people against one is considered a breakout in my books because you're you gotta you know try and support each other, get open, give and go. You're, you're thinking about your tactical spacing, your timing, receiving, um, giving a pass, um, communication. Anyway, so I, I, I think that if you're practicing in isolation, you're doing everybody a great disservice. You need to add opposition. And, and, and furthermore, you need to add, if you can, some sort of a, of a metric for progress. Like number one, for a baseline, how many passes can you achieve in a row? before you lose it and then keep track and then challenge the kids next time. Can we get one more pass or two more? Can we generate two more shots on net in this time period? If it's body checking, can we generate X number of hits in a period or in a five minute time span or in a shift? How many face-offs can we win? Um, You you just start, you know, you start to get into a little bit of the metrics and, and statistical stuff to then help provide some goal setting and some objective measures. Because what? if you're just practicing five on O or one on O in isolation and you don't keep track, and so Richard takes <coughs> 10, 10 shots on net and good, next next practice you take 10 more. If we don't record that, how am I going to know if you're getting any better? And how are you going to know if you're getting any better? Well, let's just uh, move from that. Well, not move from it, but with it. Back to the 10 versus one that uh, Verhan did at his conference. Yep. And uh, obviously it's too many kids. It was too easy for them to do. There were far too many or far too few reps. Repetitions. For, for the kids to to be able to get the opportunity to uh, look for another player, make the, the kinds of decisions they need to, and then execute the kinds of passes they need to because they had all this time and uh, they had you know a very large space. As he said, even the weak players could do it, 10 against one. But how are the weak players going to get better if they're not put in situations where they have to do things that are, as we, he didn't say, but we're saying, takes you out of your comfort zone? Well, it's the three bears syndrome. Like for some, it's going to be too easy. For some, it's too hard. Yes. For some, it's just right. So you've right. got to you've got to constantly adapt. And even within the podcast, I think Richard and John talked about well, what if you if a couple kids absolutely cannot kick the ball, they cannot make a pass, and even Raymond said, well, then you got to remove them in isolation, let them kick it against a wall a thousand times or a million times until they lock their ankle, blah, blah, blah. So in hockey, 10 on one, 10 on one, I think, you know, as a thought experiment here, Richard, how would you handle that? What would you do if you had 10... 10 on one, and you, even if you had a couple other players, what would you do to make it to increase the challenge level? Well, you could reduce the number of players, reduce the space. There's a, a lot of different variations, exactly. obviously. You, you could have two five on ones in a smaller space. Right. Let's just uh, move now into the F, which is the, um, the fitness. And he makes a distinction, Verhan makes a disti- distinction between fitness for football versus fitness in football Mm -hmm. so we just substitute hockey for for football and we'll say is it fitness in hockey or fitness for hockey we get very uh uh bent on fitness for hockey but we don't do enough about fitness within the context of a hockey practice so let's do a little bit of math A typical minor hockey game might be 45 minutes, let's say, for argument's sake. With three lines, that's 15 minutes per child. In that 15 minutes of play, what percentage of time is actually really engaged in a play? In a typical shift, a quarter of the time, third of the time, half the time? I mean, if you look at an NHL shift, there's an awful lot of time where they're not engaged we see the flurry of activity in the corner you know mm-hmm. they're working hard for five six seconds it seems like 20 but it's not you know um so let's say it's a third for argument's sake in a in a one minute shift one 20 seconds of it is actually really fully engaged 
So that means out of your 15 minutes of playing time, you've got five minutes of full engagement with the puck, around the puck, near the puck, chasing the puck, fighting for a loose puck, whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Five minutes. What are you doing in practice to engage your players so that the number of actions that take place in that practice not only replicate what happens in a game, but forces you to work harder in practice at those actions than you would have in a game, which is what Verhan was talking about. He talked about overload versus underload, and, yes. and he's looking exactly at those things. So, again, there's lots of biomechanical analysis, um, you know, activity levels based on ages, based on positions, even, even officials. They've tracked officials to see, you know, what's the, the physiological load of the player, the coach, or not the coach, the, the official, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there's journals and there's data out there. I, I'm not, I don't know what any of the numbers are. I haven't looked at them for a long time, <laughs> but using your, your, your presumptions here, I think it's, it's a good point. Like, and then how much time is spent standing around or how many reps are actually occurring at a lower intensity. He talked about you know, why he questioned, why do you train slow? And if you overload the player to such an extent that they can't handle it anymore, like a, you know, a little bit of progressive overload is good, but then you have to give them time to recover so they can neurologically and physiologically and mentally recharge to come back a day or two later. And so it's like a, a, a series of steps of overload, then recovery period, and then you start off at a slightly higher level than you know previous like it's in a it's tough to describe on the air yeah. but it's like a step so you take three steps up and then you take a big step down and then the the next step that you take up is slightly higher than the first step in the previous week so the the sequencing of your training and and he gets into that in his books and what does he focus on is he a capital c means he's going to do more on communication and a small d means less on decision making uh small e less on execution so he plays with you know capitals lowercase just to bring home the point of he's focusing on certain things at certain times with some intention and some planning so i always think in my practices if i can keep the kids engaged at a game-like intensity for longer than what they're actually going to be in a practice, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of doing a progressive overload and I'm, I'm training them physiologically, mentally, because then the focus starts to, to drift. You start to take shortcuts. You stand up earlier. You don't stay in your hockey stance. You make a pass, you admire it. You don't then jump to get open to receive a return given goal. So I think by disguising fitness in hockey by playing competitive games that the kids love to play you're now checking off that fitness box and the only danger is then i guess you've got to manage you know your individual levels on your kids because what else are they doing are they playing other sports what's the rest i mean we're not a pro team here we're just a, a minor hockey couple of volunteers helping out you do the best you can you don't have all the resources but if you don't engage them in practice, Richard, at a at a higher level than what they're going to need to be come your game day performance, you're not doing your job as a coach. As as Verhan says, you know, he refers to football actions or in our case, hockey actions. So how many actions per minute is the first uh, fitness characteristic as in his description? And he says, how good are you at repeating Mm -hmm. that particular technique skill ability for the length of the game yeah at what intensity at what yeah. pace not just in the first period not just yeah. in the first five minutes yeah you know uh i remember working with a with a team some years ago in in ottawa and telling not telling but suggesting to the coach let's break down the the period into segments 10 minute segments so we'd have six segments in a game and look at how how effective are we in those segments? And if we're weaker in puck possession or puck retention or transition in certain segments, we have to identify how does that de define what we are going to do in practice. So looking at the ability to communicate 
make decisions and execute uh, over the course of the game repeatedly at a high intensity should be our objective in practice, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think then, you know, I, I was very predisposed toward fitness early in my coaching career. And so I, I overtrained like a madman and I, I, like I, mm. I basically punished the crap out of my guys in training camp to see, I, I purposely wanted to see who would quit. I mean, that was the old school mentality, right? And uh, the old Columbia Valley Rockies, my old goalie, Richie Cohurst, and a bunch of guys out there, I know they used to talk about it all the time, about, you know, geez, Dean is running us outside. I got my forerunner on, the lights on the field, it's dark, it's cold. You know, keep going, keep going, you know, over and back, this and that. Like, no... I wasn't too worried about CDE, but I had a big capital F in bold, underlined, and italicized back in the that, Yeah, well, the F stood for something else, but that was fitness for hockey. It was F-U coach hockey. is what yeah. it was, yeah. and Fitness uh, for hockey, not fitness in hockey. Exactly, and and so I, I was pretty misguided back then, but I'll, I do still believe it's almost mm. like a Spartan mentality where you try to prepare your athletes for almost any eventuality in case it goes to overtime or whatever. And speaking of that, how many coaches will practice a shootout if, you know, if your league requires that in minor hockey in a tournament or whatever, how many teams practice a shootout and know who, who's effective at shootouts, which goalie is better at facing a guy one-on-o in a shootout. So, Again, you know, we we finish up, you know, with the F, with the fitness. I think it's important um, playing in a tournament, multiple games back-to-back -back in a showcase. Your 100% hockey level and your repetition ability decreases with every game, every practice that you throw in a, in a, in a tight timeline. And I think we need to really be aware of the importance of rest and recovery to get our best performance. In the rest of that um, uh, podcast with John O'Sullivan, they get into talking about tournaments. I get the distinct impression that Raymond Verhan thinks tournaments are just crazy town, you know, where you're playing five games in two days. Well, that First game, you're fine. Time. You can't recover for the second game, so you're now at 80% for the second game. Then you go down to 60% for the third game. It's just attrition. All it is is, you know, a war of attrition. Well, and then you throw a, a swimming pool in there and late nights and sugar yes. and eating at different times yep. and all yep, the yep, peer yep. pressure and gaming, yep. and yep. it's just a gong show. It is. So, uh, Mr. Dean, uh, we have translated all of Raymond Verhan's work into into hockey terms. Just about. I, and uh, I, I, I want to finish, though, Richard. I love that one statement you and I discussed prior to starting today. Um, Raymond says he's trying to provoke a desired behavior yes i thought that was like one of the big key takeaways for me you know he talked about tactics are a tool to streamline <clears throat> the process but the coach's job is he wants to provoke a desired behavior and that doesn't happen in isolation without opposition that happens in real time under real life environmental cues and contexts yeah that's creating activities in practice whether they're small area games or certain kinds of drill activities where you're trying to get players to do something where you, you know that uh, that's affecting the team what is the team intention it ain't going to come from a drill buddy it's got to come from a game Act that's why i use activity because i the knew word the drill word. so i'm I slapping I'm you right sorry. now i'm yep. sorry i'm sorry <laughs> All right, we've. Uh, I I don't know if Raymond can skate, but I think it's time he learned if he doesn't already. Yeah. Uh, we'll so invite we can... him over. Let's have him come over and do a hockey. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, we've been talking about uh, Raymond Verhan's uh, CDEF communication, decision making, execution, and fitness for hockey, based on his recent talk with John O'Sullivan on that podcast. The notes of which I will put uh, online when we publish the podcast. Uh, Dean, thanks very much. Good discussion. We probably could have gone on for a lot longer, but we probably also would have just, you know, veered into other avenues as we have We done. might have hit the letter G. We might, yes. Uh, you've been listening to uh, Grassroots, the Minor Hockey Show podcast. You can reach me at Richard at grassrootsminorhockey.com. Thank you for listening. Dean, thanks for uh, oh. stepping up again to, to discuss this important topic. 
and uh, keep listening, everyone. Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye.